Today's episode is sponsored by the NBA and their quest to advance the game of basketball, grow the community, and impact culture. The league celebrates its teams, players, and fans across the past, present, and future as part of the 75th anniversary season. That's Game highlights pivotal moments on court and beyond. From iconic plays in arenas to the impact players have in communities, that's the NBA, that's Game. It's like Game 5 of the NBA Finals where I was lucky enough to be there. Bucks, Suns, in Milwaukee. I'm sitting kitty corner from Giannis Antetokounmpo as he rises up for that incredible alley-oop. Drew Holiday having stolen the ball from Devin Booker on the other side. Found Giannis in transition. Incredible stuff. That's the NBA. That's game. This is more than just basketball. It's what connects us all and keeps us coming back for more. That's the NBA. That's game. Welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Posnanski, and a little bit later on in the show, uh, you'll get to hear my conversation with Claire McNear of The Ringer, whose new book uh, is about Jeopardy. Very uh, cool new book uh, called Answers in the Form of Questions, and uh, we talk a little bit about Jeopardy, talk about the the late Alex Trebek. Uh, Very cool book, very cool conversation, so that's coming up, but first, uh, could not be more excited uh, to welcome my dear friend, my brother, the president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, Bob Kendrick. Bob, welcome. Joe, thanks, man. It's so good to be on the show again. It's it's always good to have you on. It's always good when when uh, we can get together. We're actually getting together this week. It's kind of a special it's a special week. So so Friday is going to be Buck O'Neill's 109th birthday. What would have been his 109th birthday? Uh, he has been gone now for 14 years. Which I know. Is, I know. Stunning, just stunning. It, it really is. It really is, Joe, because as you well know it, I know you get it as much as I do, man. Everywhere I go, yeah, someone has a Buck O'Neill story that they can't wait to share. Yeah. And, and I it never gets over me. Bring them on. I love hearing them. Absolutely. But I think in the process, it has helped keep him alive. Very much. Yeah, yeah. So it is hard to believe that it's been 14 years. It is. It it feels more recent, but you're right. It's he's still so much in the conversation. Uh, you know, people still want to talk about him. They never get tired of hearing the the same stories <laughs> that he told. Uh, we'll probably tell a few of those. But very cool thing we've got coming up on Friday. Uh, at 12.45 Central Time, so 1.45 in the East Coast. Um, we're going to have a conversation uh, that you set up. Very, very cool. Why don't you tell everybody what uh, what we're going to be doing here? Yeah, the live stream event is called Remembering Buck. And it is in celebration of his 109th birthday. And, you know, it was just a brainchild to get three folks to join me who all have great connections to Buck O'Neill, the legendary filmmaker Ken Burns, yep. the great sportscaster Bob Costas, and of course yourself, the author of one of the best books ever written about anybody, but certainly about our friend Buck O'Neill. And it was, the idea was just the four of us would get together and, and share memories, trade stories, talk a little Negro Leagues history in the process. 
just the way that Buck would have wanted us to do. And, and so I hope people will tune in because obviously, you know, between the four of us, there are a lot. I don't know how in the world in an hour time. <laughs> <laughs> just just Ken, just keeping Ken for an hour is going to be, you know, Ken needs like nine parts to tell every exactly. story that he wants to tell. Exactly. So. Now, so I don't know I, how I, I, I don't know how we got invited. It's going to be great. I don't know how we are in on that, right? I mean, well, you, you know, know I, I look at it and I'm like, all of you guys are too smart for me to be <laughs> no, in there. No, <laughs> no, no, you and me, we'll be watching Ken uh, Birds and Bob Costas. So it's 12:45 uh, Central, 1:45 Eastern. Uh, I guess 10:45 uh, on the West Coast. Uh, you will be able to stream it. We'll we'll go over this again a little later on but you can stream it on the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum Facebook page uh-huh. and on the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum YouTube channel, which might be the best place to watch it. But it will be streaming uh, in both places. And it will also be, if I understand this right, recorded and people can watch it afterward as well. Yes? Yeah, absolutely. And so we're excited about it. This is our first big live stream event as we make our official entree into this world of virtuality. <laughs> and, and so I'm looking forward to this. And in, and it's so funny because Bob Costas is in California. You, of course, in Charlotte, Ken in New Hampshire, and I'm in the middle of the country in Kansas City. So we got virtually every time zone covered. <laughs> we are we are well covered. And uh, and the good thing I, I noticed, we, we've already done a little run through. Uh, you have actual people who know what's going on with the technology, which is good because none no, of no, us no, will no. be able to do it. None that of was us. a really good thing. I got out the way and let some people who knew exactly what they were doing <laughs> take over all this technical stuff. And so they just tell me all I need to do is show up and, and run my mouth. That's... And I guess I can handle that piece. Yeah, it should be. It should be pretty. It should be great. It's going to be so much fun. I hope you will uh, join us. Um we're going to tell some buck stories now. We're going to we're going to talk a little bit about Buck here on the on the 109th uh you know with his 109th birthday coming up. Buck Buck loved his birthday, man. You know, we 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 you would always have some sort of Buck O'Neill birthday celebration. There was nobody happier when when it was birthday time than Buck. No, no, you know, and, and he was so gracious because he would he he we started doing these Buck O'Neill birthday bashes maybe about 10 years before he passed away. Right. And you're right. He looked so much forward. <laughs> you know, this was the red dress day and the yep. women were encouraged, you know, eventually to wear red dresses afterwards because as you know, Buck had the affinity for red dresses. And, and, and but he did. And, and for Buck, you know, it, that, that whole metaphor for life. Yeah. And, and, and no one loved life more than Buck. Now, there may have been some that loved it just as much, but no <laughs> one loved life and people more than Buck O'Neill. And so to use his birthday to help raise money and awareness for his museum. And then when he passed away, Joe, we just kept up that tradition of celebrating his life. And so while we couldn't do it the way that we would typically do it in this crazy COVID world that we're living in, we had the opportunity through some unique uh, chain of events. You know, we start the morning of February, of uh, Friday, November 13th with the unveiling of a streetcar. A streetcar. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know he'd be tickled to death <laughs> about the fact that he now has a streetcar and, and we'll have those ceremonies before I make a mad dash to come back here to the museum to get set up to talk with you guys and 
to see the city continue to remember him and, and embrace his legacy means a lot to me, as you well know. I mean, this is not, this moves well beyond the professional. Sure. It, it, this is very much personal. And, and so as long as I have any say in the matter, you know, we won't let people forget Buck O'Neill. And, and it's still, you know, I have to, the realization that there are generations of young people who didn't get that opportunity that you and I had. Uh-huh. But it's important that they understand who Buck O'Neill was yeah. and, and why these things, you know, now Buck has a bridge. He has a Navy ship, you know, they <laughs> named the USS Kansas City Galley after Buck is the right on time Buck O'Neill Galley <laughs> on the USS Kansas City. We got a Metro bus that we're unveiling that day. We got some bicycles. Now, I may never see the bicycle because I won't be on no. <laughs> <laughs> so we got virtually every mode of transportation now covered for Buck. And, and so I guess the next thing is to see if we can't get Buck on an airplane. So if anybody at Southwest Airlines <laughs> listening. <laughs> oh, I, I kind of always thought that that uh, that Cadillac should just name the Cadillac after they Buck. Nobody <laughs> loved a Cadillac more than Buck did. <laughs> All right, so let's let's talk a little bit about Buck, because because yeah. you know we've we you and I have gotten together and we've told these stories for years and years now. But you know, let, let me take it from a little bit of a different angle. First of all, I, I know everybody who's listening knows who Buck O'Neill was, but just very briefly, Buck was uh, you know one of you know he he was a, a great Negro Leagues player. He was a great Negro Leagues manager. He was uh, a pioneering scout for the major leagues who scouted uh, three hall of famers and, 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 you know, some of the, you know, and, and even those that he didn't scout, like people like Billy Williams, he had, you know, this enormous, enormous impact on uh, he was the first African-American coach in major league baseball. Uh, and he was of course this, this spokesman for baseball, for the Negro leagues, someone who represented the game, uh, you know, you, you say that, you know, nobody, nobody loved life more than Buck. Um, some might love it as much. Nobody spoke as eloquently or more eloquently about the game than Buck O'Neill. Some, some might've spoken as eloquently. I mean, there are, <laughs> there are those who, who have, I mean, you know, Vince Scully and others, yeah, but, yeah. but that's the, that's what we're talking about with Buck. Um, so you're dealing with someone who, who had this huge, oversized impact on on baseball and on on this country in so many different ways and you're also talking about a guy though who the reason that so many people come up to us and say oh i've got a buck o'neill story is he was always there he was always there you went by the museum yeah. He was there, ready to give you a hug and 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 take you around. If you you know you saw him on a golf course, you saw him in an airport, you saw him in a restaurant. It's not like you would ever walk by Buck O'Neill and you wouldn't and he wouldn't say anything. I mean, I I don't think I've ever met a person who so loved people. Yeah, just loved being around. And you and I saw it daily, right? Yeah. I mean, you we saw it in the yeah. big ways where we would see him speak in front of all these people, but. You and I and, and, and Buck, when I was writing my book, uh, The Soul of Baseball, but, but also when we were just hanging around, we shared many meals with Buck. We went to many places with Buck. I never saw Buck not talk to a stranger. Never saw him pass an opportunity to talk to the, 
guy at the table next to him. Hey, what are you eating there, brother? What, what do you got there? <laughs> that looks good. I want one of those. What, what, is, what is that? Or just walking, you know, through an airport and just and just seeing a, a mom with a kid and just going up to them and, and just saying, you know, hey, you like baseball? You know, you know, he would he'd carry around that ball that he would throw to kids all the time. <laughs> I don't I really, truly don't think I've ever seen anybody who loved that part of life just connecting and, with everybody the way he and did. So I think that's what, obviously it made him the special person that he is. Sure. And I think it kept him going for so many years. Yes. He fed off of that. Yeah. And I really believe that's why he lived such a long, wonderful life. That spirit drove him and it was infectious. You know, so I think we all reap the benefit of the spillover effect. Yeah. From Buck O'Neill because it just exuded from him. And, and, you know, people still constantly remind me of chance encounters mm -hmm. that they had with this man and how life altering it was. <laughs> you know, it wasn't just this joy of saying, oh, I had a chance to meet Buck, but it changed my life. Yeah. You know, having met Buck and spent time with Buck. And, you know, Buck O'Neill hugged me. He threw the ball to my son. <laughs> you know, those little things that we all knew and loved Buck for. But it was something very innate about him. And, you know, yeah, it, it was special to be around. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you watched it. And as much as much time as we spent with him, you know, it still never ceased to amaze me. Right. Number one, the, just the sheer energy level that he had. And, and I think that energy level would always grow any time that he was around people. He might right. get a little tired, but when he got around people, he was re-energized again. I think about that part of it all the time. The way that he would soak in other people's energy and, <laughs> and feed off of it. You know, we've, we've talked about this many times, but we were in Gary, Indiana. That's, <laughs> that's the one that always strikes me. Although not that different in Washington, D.C. or in New York or in Chicago or in San Diego. It's all it's all the same story in a lot of ways with Buck. But we were in Gary, Indiana. He was there to speak at a minor league uh, all-star game, <laughs> all right? That's an all-star yeah. game. Uh, and it was it was, you know, it was it was nothing against Gary, Indiana, but it was, you know, there wasn't a lot going on. And, and, and uh, remember we went there and Mike Ditka was the other speaker <laughs> and Mike got out of there. Literally Mike in the middle of his speech said, I got to go golf. And he Mark, left. Uh, Mike had a tea time, man. <laughs> He's like, ah, it's been great being with you. He'd been there for like 20 minutes, great being with you. And then he left and Buck of course stayed. And I, you know, I remember, you know, you, it was, it was exhausting. And, and, you know, you thought, Hey, Buck was 93 at the time. And you're going how how much longer can he, you know, deal with this? Cause it was, it was one person to another, to another, to another. And there was a moment where he, he really was tired and he went back to, we went back to our rooms and he sort of regrouped. He read the Bible. I remember that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right? He's like, I read the Bible a little bit, but then he came out and then, being around all those people, it's like it it just like brought him back to life. And, yeah, like, uh, yeah. and I, uh, I was the who's like, do you know anybody else like that to that point? I mean, it's no, it's amazing. No, no that's amazing. actually that's one of my favorite chapters in the book is being there in Gary, 
because the Gary trip was kind of grueling in his own right. Yeah. You know, going over, flying into Chicago, driving over to, to Gary, and they had a slew of events for him. And I remember the barbershop quartet. Yes. And, and there was Buck <laughs> joining in, singing with the barbershop quartet. Yes. And, and you're right. You know, as we were going back to the hotel to, to get a few minutes, because it wasn't a lot of time no. to get any rest before we needed to be back at the ballpark. And, you know, Buck was saying he was going to take a nap. But then when he said he got to the room, he said, I, I, I really need, I started, to put, I picked up a book and I couldn't put it down. Yeah. And I remember you asked him what the book was. He said, the Bible. The Bible. Because he felt like he needed a little help. <laughs> <laughs> and then he just springs to life. I, You know, I yeah. it same thing happened in Washington. We were, uh, um, the first time we went to Washington, when it was really hot. Oh, I mean, it was so really hot. Really hot. I don't know if I've experienced a day hotter than it was that day at all. It was, it's, it was, I'll tell you what, the two hottest days of my life might have been that time in Washington and that time in Houston. Both yeah, of those both days. Those. <laughs> <laughs> both those days. So we, so, you know, we were traveling with Buck at the time. Why don't you tell people, you know, one thing that, that I, you know, I, I mentioned it in the book, but something we don't often talk about is why, why we were all on the road. Yeah. We yeah. were all part of a really cool exhibit. It, it really was with our friends over at Roadway and, and YRC Freight who had put together this incredible three-year partnership where we had put a version of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum literally inside of a 53-foot tractor trailer. Inside a and truck. we had orchestrated a 75-city baseball tour. And so it was the perfect stage to give us a reason to follow Buck and Buck was doing a lot <laughs> of these appearances and you know I'm dragging along as well and, and 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 so this is what got us on the road and it just set the stage beautifully you know for us to have reasons for you to jump in and come along and be there with Buck along the way and, and it was amazing I mean you know we were doing these tour stops and you know it was pretty much the same song and dance at every one of these tour stops yes and, Yes. But it was incredible that, and, you know, so much exposure for the museum as part of that. And Buck, of course, was all about anything that he could do to help support the museum. So he was Johnny on the spot on a number of those trips out of oh, town. We went on those appearances. Yeah, we went on a bunch. We, you know, oh, the, yeah. the, not yeah. every trip in the book was directly related to that, but most were. And yeah. I remember you going to Buck and you saying, all right, Buck, we're... we're Got to go to Houston. We got to go to Washington. Got to go. And Buck's like, all right, you just you just tell me where to be. I mean, he, yeah, no, he, he had far more energy than I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were there were plenty of times that I was like, ah, I'm, I'm tired. You know, you it, but you couldn't be tired around Buck. I, I no. just that energy that he had, and again, it was like it was such a positive energy always. It was such a such a loving energy you know i mean the story i always tell i'm sure i'll tell on friday as well was when we were in houston and uh, it was at the end of the day and we were at the ball game and buck was tired you know you, you buck was buck had buck was buck was amazingly energetic but buck also knew when to go away and uh, you know when nobody when nobody was looking like hey where did buck go and buck was he called it a night but that night we were at the ballpark and he couldn't get away. And uh, we were sitting there and he was kind of half watching the game and somebody threw a ball. One of the players threw a ball into the stands and, and uh, an adult 
caught the ball over a kid, you know, like literally took it away. The, the, the guy seemed to be throwing it to the kid and the guy caught it and kind of took it away from the kid. And, and I said, uh, what, what a jerk that guy is. And Buck did not see it. And Buck was like, what are you talking about? And I said, Oh, you know, the, that guy took that ball away from the kid. And we looked down and there's the guy like on command, like <laughs> holding up the ball. So everybody could see this, this glorious thing that he had done where he took a ball away from a kid. And, and I said, man, what a jerk. And Buck said, man, you shouldn't be so hard on him. You know, he might have a kid of his own at home. And I thought, man, you know, this guy's the positive energy is, you know, who, who looks at that? Who looks at a guy taking a ball away from a kid and immediately thinks about, uh, you know, the kid, him having a kid at home. And I, and I remember reflecting and thinking, and then it just hit me like, wait a minute. And I say to Buck, wait a minute. If he has a kid, why didn't he bring the kid to the ball game? At which point Buck said, maybe his kid is sick. And, and that's when I knew I'm like, I can't beat him at this game. Never, never, never going to beat him at this game ever. There's nothing I can do. That's going to break that spirit. And, but that was so fuck. He was like the, the energy that he, people just didn't understand it because they would see him for a minute and they think, Oh, what a, what a positive guy, what a positive force this is. And they didn't realize He'd done that a hundred times already that day. You know, he'd done that for hours and hours and hours that day. And every single person who saw him, that's why they all have so many memories. It's like, he never let that guard down ever. He always was like that. No, he, he, he really was. And I think Joe, that's why so many people were surprised when he died. Yeah. You know, it, it's rare that we are surprised that a 94-year-old anybody <laughs> right, died. Right. You know, but everybody was surprised when Buck died. And even though we know that no one is going to live forever, but if anybody was, <laughs> it would be Buck. And, and, and so yeah, it was it, it sent shockwaves when he did pass away. But I think that's because so many people were connected to him. In, in ways in which I'm not sure he really understood. You know, he felt it. He felt the love. He felt the love when he didn't get into the Hall of Fame. He I was going to I was going to say yeah. I thought you know, look, I, I Buck knew the connections that he was making with people because you know, it was it was just he was just being himself, but he was still around all of these people who loved him, you know, so much. I think, you know, you and I have talked many times and we will on Friday promise you <laughs> about the, the travesty that was the hall of fame day and how, how terrible that day was for, for all of us, but you and I in particular being around buck so close to buck at the time, uh, how tough that day was and how buck lifted us up and, and yeah, saved yeah. us in really yeah. way. He really saved us. Yeah. And we'll talk about all that on Friday, but one thing, that I think it's underplayed by that is, and you know, this, uh, you know, from being around him so closely. And I know it from being around him at that time. He, it was the first time I think he saw a nation open up to him. Yep. You know I mean? Look, it wasn't that he, look, he was on Letterman. He was, he was famous. He was the Ken Burns thing had done so much for him, but the way that the whole country came together in support of him, I think it was different than anything he he'd experienced. I, I, I absolutely agree. Yeah. 
and it lifted him up in in ways in which you know I'm not sure that I had truly understood right prior. Uh, and I tell people all the time, you know, Buckle Neal died knowing that he was loved. Yes. The outpouring of love that came his way. For, you know, he was already a star. And, and people admired him tremendously. But his star rose even higher, if no that doubt. was possible, by the way that he handled the disappointment of not getting into the National Baseball Hall of Fame. And then he took it upon himself to lift all of us up Yes. We were grieving for him. <laughs> <laughs> I tell people all the time, Joe, it's been 14 years later. Man, I still get mad when I tell the story. So, you know, I, I'm trying to be more buck-like. Yes. I am a work in progress. I am not there yet. I, I still need some help. <laughs> it, was, it was. It was so emotional. But, you know, I, I think just part of who he was and part of his life experience that he, I mean, it wasn't just seeing the positive because that's not exactly right. Because you and I both know he was hurt that he didn't get elected to the Hall of Fame. He was hurt. You know, I don't want to make it sound like he was sitting there and and it didn't bother him. It bothered him. It, it definitely bothered him, you know, because one, he there was every sign that was pointing that he was but going to get. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, they had asked him not to be on that on that board so that he could so that he could get elected to the Hall of Fame, basically. Yep. Uh, so I, I know he was hurt, but it's not a question of like, okay, he he saw everything in a positive way. It's that he turned everything in a positive way, right? Yep. It's like, it's not that he looked back at his childhood and not being able to go to Sarasota High School as like a positive. Of course, it was horrible. And he knew what he had endured. But his, his point was, they're not going to win. I'm not going to yeah. let that happen. I'm not going to yeah. let those people win. I'm going to rise above it. And yeah. he would have, I think the biggest disappointment of all of the things, I mean, he, he should have played in the major leagues. I think the biggest disappointment he never managed in the major leagues, yeah. because I think he would have been. A and, and I think manager. that hurt him too. Yes. I, really do. I think it hurt him when the Cubs and, you know, they had that ill-fated college coach. <laughs> what a disaster. And they, they, I remember, I think Ebony Magazine asked Buck what he thought about this old college of coaches, and Buck thought it was a dumb idea, too. <laughs> you, can't tell, you can't tell your employer that you think it's a dumb idea. And, and But when it got to be his turn, they wouldn't let him on the field. Right, you right. Know, everybody's waiting for Buck O'Neill to get on the field, and they wouldn't let him on the field. because Not I, even as a coach. Yeah. yeah, not I even as a coach. Like they wouldn't get him off the field again. Well, that's right. Yeah. But I think, look, Buck Buck was a very good player, right? He was a great defensive player. Yeah. He was a, a two-time batting champion. Exactly. Uh, he was a very good player. But, you know, that wasn't what made him. Like, he, he would tell you a lot of players were better than me. I mean, you know, he'd yeah. say that. As a manager, though, I, I think he could have been legendary. I just, the way he respond, the way players responded to yeah. him, yeah, legendary, I think. Plus yeah. the way he, his eyes, we, you and I have talked about this. Did we ever watch a game with Buck O'Neill where we didn't learn something? You always did. You always, always. Did because he was always watching the game as a manager. Yeah. You know, anticipating what the move might be or should be. And, and George Altman, who played for Buck, of course, here for the Monarchs, and then Buck essentially brought him over to the Chicago Cubs as well. Right. And he still says to this very day, and George Altman played not only for the Chicago Cubs, 
St. Louis Cardinals, New York Mets, went over and had a tremendous career in Japan. Matter of fact, he revived his career in Japan. Yes. One of the first, you know, big time U.S. stars in Japan and in Japanese baseball. And he still says to this very day that the greatest manager he ever played for was Buck O'Neill. Yeah. And, and, and Buck just had this keen understanding of how to lead men. You know, he knew when to kick him in the rump. Mm-hmm. And he knew when to put his arms around them and, 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 and let them know that they can, to instill that confidence. And, and I hear the guys from the, you know, my good friends from the Royals, the Willie Wilsons, the Frank Whites, the John Mayberries of the world. Willie Wilson would say in a Pat Kaufman stadium, the voice that he could always hear <laughs> was Buck O'Neill. Yeah. And, and he says that, you know, guy, good fastball, trying to get it by him, and Willie fouls it straight back. And you hear Buck's voice, man. 40,000 people in the ballpark, and he can hear boy, Buck's voice say, oh, you got him now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's and exactly what the, right. And what that meant to him. You know, and, and John Mayberry says the same thing. You know, they had Charlie Lau, who was teaching hitting there and that kind of thing. And John, John, John is so funny. He's one of the funniest guys in all of baseball. So funny. He said Charlie Lau had that deep, bare voice of his. Charlie Lau was trying to turn me into a single hitter. <laughs> I'm a power hitter. <laughs> I... And he said whenever he went into a slump, he bypassed Charlie Lyle <laughs> and went to Buck O'Neill. Yeah. And, and Buck was telling him what he's doing. He said, well, John, you got your hands a little too low. Bring them up a little bit. You know, and these kinds of things. And, man, and, and it just resonated with them. Yeah. it's. I think it's It's really It's really one of the sad elements of, of, of uh, segregation in baseball yeah. that Buck O'Neill never got to manage. Yeah. You know, well, we talk about players who didn't get to play, but – Buck should have managed. It's a classic example of what happens when you stifle talent. Yeah. Yeah. And and really, that's what segregation did. It stifled talent. Yes. All of these extraordinarily gifted and talented people who never got a chance. So you don't know how much better things could have been. Right. Whatever field of endeavor. You know, and I think, Joe, that's what Buck talked about. You know, you know, he was very proud to be the first black coach in baseball history. Said, you know, living conditions were better, making a little bit more money. But as he would also go on to say is, I couldn't stick out my chest being the first black coach when I knew all of these other black baseball minds who were more than capable of of waiting a guy home. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, it's, it's just one of those... You know, when we talk about segregation in baseball, sometimes I feel like it gets to be all about Jackie Robinson. It's all about Larry Doby. And of course it is the way that they were able to introduce, but segregation doesn't end there. It takes years and years and years for every team to be to be desegregated for, for, you know, and then, you know, it's another few years before the American league really starts to embrace black players, which is why the national league was so much better than the yeah. American league for yeah. years and years, you know? Yeah. 
and but it takes so much time. But at the same moment, you there are no black coaches and there are no black managers. And the first black manager has to be a superstar, right? It has to be somebody who is not only, you know, uh, one of the great, you know, sort of personalities and forces in the game and Frank Robinson, but also one of the greatest players who ever yeah. played the game. And that's the way it is. And, and we all know, no offense to Frank Robinson, who obviously is the, one of the great figures in the history of the game, the best players aren't always the best managers, you, you know? Not. <laughs> right. You are not. Right. You know? and, and, and so, and that's what we talk about. And we recently opened up the first phase of a new exhibit here called Barrier Breakers. Mm-hmm. And, and the Barrier Breaker exhibit, Joe, chronicles just what you mentioned. All of the players who broke their respective Major League team color barriers from Jackie Robinson in 1947 through Pumpsy Green in 1959. That's right. The last sign with the Boston Red Sox. So this thing plays out over 12 years. And every one of those individuals had their own trials and tribulations yes. as they were trying to navigate a path to play this game. So it didn't end with Jackie Robinson. It didn't get any easier for Pumpsy Green nope. in 1959 than it did for Jackie Robinson in 1947. And, and, and then you mentioned something else, the hierarchy in our sports. The fact that it would take 15 years from the time that Jackie signs and joins Brooklyn in 47 before you get your first black coach. Right. Buck O'Neill, 15 years later. And then you don't get your first manager until 13 years after Buck and your first GM the next year in 76 with Bill Lucas. Yes. So, you know, all of these great minds that have been a part of the Negro Leagues, that door didn't open for them. The door only opened on the field for a select few. And and, and so you're right, it, it changed things sweepingly in our country for the better, but man, there were a lot of people who got left out in the process. Even during that time, I mean, for, we can talk about the amazing minds and players of the 30s and the 40s and the 20s, I'm not even talking about them. We're talking about the players who got left behind who were on time, but still it didn't move fast enough for them, you know, which is, which is amazing. And which reminds me, you know, we won't talk about this on Friday, but Buck O'Neill was not the only living player on the ballot in 2006 who did not get voted in. And I would, I could make an argument and might make this argument that the single biggest uh, sort of person who is not in the Hall of Fame who should be forgetting what's going on with Barry Bonds, forgetting what's going on with Roger Clemens. We know how great they were. We know the reasons they're not in. The biggest omission in the Hall of Fame, I think you can make a very strong argument, is Minnie Minoso. Minnie Minoso was one of the great players. He was the first uh, dark skinned player in Chicago. I mean, that's really uh, unbelievably important. He was he was a you know one of the great outfielders of his time. He was a spokesman for the game and somebody who brought more joy to the game than almost anybody. Yes. And they wouldn't vote him into the Hall of Fame, and nobody's voted him into the Hall of Fame, and it's it's a it's a disgrace. I I really yeah. think it's a and, disgrace. And I was hurt for many as well. You know, Buck kind of overshadowed Buck not getting in kind of overshadowed. Yes, it did. Yes, it did. Because they were the only two living names on that list that were that were up for consideration 
And I know how much this meant to many. Yes. Really, Joe wanted to be in. And, and, and it didn't happen for him. And many Minoso was the Latino Jackie Robinson. That's exactly right. And, and, and so for me, that committee really erred on their decision because they kind of decided or determined that many didn't play long enough in the Negro Leagues for the consideration. Now, you got to be smarter. Yes. <laughs> you know, now I'm not the, I'm not a scholar. I've got a little Crawfordville, Georgia <laughs> education, but you got to be smarter than that, man. And you got to understand the significance of number one, having a living presence be there. Right. And, and I always felt like they erred on the fact that you left the two people out who were alive that really would have made it a celebration. That's right. Because this is not it's not about merit, even though both of them merit of course. The consideration. They earn the right to be there, but you also have to understand that this is a celebration. And living presence is what really makes yes. it a celebration. And, and so, but for me, the fence was, if you're going to tell me that many didn't play long enough in the Negro League, then he should have been on the ballot. That's right. Once you put him on the ballot <laughs> and then he makes his way to the final group of, you can't use the fact that he didn't play in the Negro League long enough against him now, you know? And you also have to be smart enough to look at his career in its entirety. Well, that's- Both Negro League and Major League and impact, you know, again, as being the Latino Jackie Robinson. That's right. Well, you and I talked about it at the time. You and I have talked about it many times since then. It was it was how myopic, how narrow minded they were, uh, and you know, look, I, these are good people. Where I'm not trying to say anything about them exactly. These are good people, but to look at Buck O'Neill and say he doesn't fit into one box, right? He wasn't he wasn't a good enough player or manager or this, and it's like you see the life, right? I mean, you see the whole picture, don't you? And it was the same thing with Minnie Minoso, which is like, oh, he, 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 are you, we're limiting ourselves now to only the time in the Negro Leagues. That's what we're limiting ourselves to. They were given an absolute mandate to do whatever they wanted, to, to celebrate the Negro Leagues, to celebrate. That was what the whole point was. Base, Major League Baseball basically was saying, this is it. This is your, this is your last chance. This is the chance to get you guys are, you are the experts of the Negro leagues put in everybody you think belongs in the Negro leagues. And they took that mandate and put 17 people in and somehow felt like the line stopped with Minnie Minoso and Buck O'Neill. Uh -huh. And, and it's, you know, it's heartbreaking to this day. Now there is an opportunity for Buck again. Uh, yeah. there, there is a continuous opportunity for, for many uh, Minoso to come back when they do the golden era ballots. Uh, I'm very hopeful that something can happen in both cases. Of course they would have been alive then and, and neither one of them is with us uh, now, but what are your thoughts on, you know, particularly with Buck, but many as well. Uh, and, and the opportunity maybe in the next year or two for them to get into the hall of fame. You know, you and I have talked about this on many occasions. I, honestly, I don't know if it'll mean as much to me now because Buck is gone and many, many's gone. But for their fans, yes, and it's 14 years later, man, 
And Joe, people are just as vigilant today yeah. as they were in 2006 about Buck O'Neill belonging in the Hall of Fame. And it would be almost impossible not to be happy for those folks who have, you know, kind of kept this charge alive for all those years. And I think they will feel vindicated yes. that their voices had been heard if he does indeed get in. So, you know, it would be hard not to be happy for them. And then, of course, I'm still forever, you know, a marketing man and a, and a, and a, and a leader of these baseball museums. I also know what that would mean for this museum. And to be able to plan a Buck O'Neill Hall of Fame celebration would be something quite significant that this city and the baseball world would get squarely behind. Yes. And, and what that would mean. And so... You know, you always look, you know, I was disappointed this year when the, the decision-making got moved to next year. That's right. But it's almost fake because now if this happens next year, and again, we won't know until next year, but if it happens next year and he does get selected, then the celebration would take place in 2022. The induction, subsequent uh, celebration, well, this U.S. minted coin that we're getting yeah. comes out in 2022. <laughs> you know, and what a great boost a Buck O'Neill Hall of Fame celebration would have for this Negro League centennial coin that will be produced and the ability to help market that at an even greater level, coupled with a Hall of Fame celebration and what that will do for Buck's museum in terms of positioning it for really to position it into perpetuity. Yeah. And that's what we all want. We all want his museum to stand the test of time. Right. And, and you know, so as he seemingly did throughout his life, he seemed to always bring joy out of despair. Always. And, and, and he's done that in death. He really has. And, and so if the stars all align, you know, we'll get to have a Buck O'Neill Hall of Fame celebration, the minting of a coin. And, and, and let me say, you know, while we're so honored to be able to get the coin, that is a feather, major feather in the cap of Buck's museum. But there is real significant financial ramifications. <laughs> yes, you yes. Know that. I'm all about that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, and, and this coin has the potential, Joe, to generate up to $6 million for the museum if we sell them all through. Wow. And, and we have every indication that the collecting world, the baseball world, will be highly anticipating this coin. I am. And, and there'll be events leading up to the minting of the coin, a design team and celebrating the design and the actual first coin being minted, which we believe is going to be Philadelphia. We're not 100% sure about that yet. And, and all these things, the buildup that will lead to that. But there are some major, major financial possibilities associated with this coin. Yeah, it's very exciting. It's very exciting. So for those of you just just to uh, just to fill in the gaps there, uh, mm -hmm. this year was supposed to be the election. 
for Buck O'Neill's time. They were going to, for the first time since 2006, when, when uh, 2007, I guess, no, 2006, when, uh, uh, when, when Buck failed to get in uh, by a single vote uh, for the first time, they are going, they are going to open it up again to Negro leagues players. Uh, for, it's, it's basically pre whatever, 1950 or something like that. 19, maybe it's pre world war two. Um and so Buck O'Neill will be eligible, and and there's the you know every indication that he has a very good chance of getting on the ballot and and perhaps getting elected, which would be very exciting. So that was supposed to be this year; is now going to be next year. But as as Bob says, this does lead in beautifully, potentially, to uh, this wonderful Negro Leagues Museum, uh, Negro Leagues uh, baseball coin that is going to be minted in 2022, which was a political. That you know, there aren't many things that bring our sides together, are there? Not many things oh, that bring yeah. everybody together. And, and, and the fact that the Negro Leagues Museum could get this bipartisan legislation <laughs> at a time when the Democrats and Republicans agree, agree on very little nothing, nothing you know, means a great deal to us, as you can well imagine. And but I also hope that it speaks volume to. The significance of what this museum represents. Yeah, I think that's right. Caretaker of this very precious piece of baseball and Americana, and, and so you know, again, in that same Buck O'Neill spirit, you know, he built this museum 30 years ago. It's still hard to believe. 30 years ago, we celebrated 30 years in September. You know, where you grow from a little one-room office, amazing, to now being recognized as America's National Negro Leagues baseball museum because he just believed and he had a small group of others who believed right along with him there was no money the museum didn't have any resources nope. no endowment in place or any of these things that you would typically see with a startup institution like this it was just a fledgling little museum where a small group of people believed that this story deserved to be told and it deserved to be celebrated and preserved. And 30 years later, man, we just haven't looked back. You know, you, there's always a, a road bump somewhere along the line, you go through that. But as you well know, you don't make 30, I don't care what endeavor it is, <laughs> you don't get 30 no. by, by happenstance. No. You have to do something right. No, that's 30. True with our kids too. If our kids just just get to thirty, that's really what I'm hoping for as uh, as we go forward. No, but you know, it's it's it should be said when the museum was a one room, you know, where where Buck was one of several people to pay the rent. Like every month, somebody else would pay the rent for this little one room office building. That there was no exhibit, you know. It's like you would go in there and you say, "Hey, where are the exhibits?" And they'd open a drawer and they'd, you know, so they had like. No, no, I never did. I went in and you know, my first visit there, they'd ask me about doing some work for them. I'm with the newspaper at that time, and, and I walk into Mr. Motley's office, the late Don Motley. Late Don Motley. And I walk into his office, Joe, and I say, "Well, where's the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum?" He said, you standing in it. (laughs) (laughs) All I see is a desk, but it's really important to say that was before the Ken Burns documentary. Yes. That was before Buck and, and others had really started to, to, to break through with the story. So you're talking 1991. Nobody wanted to hear about the Negro leagues at that time. And and really major league baseball didn't really care. Nope. 
did not want to hear about it. It was, and to be fair, I mean, I think a lot of people saw it as a shame is what they And that's did. exactly what it was. I yeah. think it made them have to think about something that they at that time would have preferred to forget. That's right. But I think what we've seen with the evolution of this story and this museum, that this is nothing to be ashamed of. Not at all. You know, I tell people all the time, Joe, the circumstances that led for a need for a Negro Leagues is shameful and sorrowful. Segregation. Right. But the Negro Leagues themselves, there's nothing shameful about that story. Now, this is a group of courageous athletes who forged a glorious history in the midst of an inglorious time in American history. And it was simply fueled by their passion for this game. And, and, and then, as you know, they would not only make the game better, but they helped make our country better. That's right. And, and that, that's as an American story as you will ever encounter. It is so steep in the American spirit. And I think that's why it resonates with so many once they're introduced to it. Yeah. And Buck was that Pied Piper. He was out there <laughs> preaching. You are yes. literally preaching the gospel of the Negro Leagues to everybody who would listen. And, and, and you know, we'll talk about this, I'm sure, on Friday. Ken, Ken Burns gave him a platform and people listened, man. Yeah. People listened. Yeah, it's going to be very fun to talk to Ken about this because one thing Buck would always say, I mean, he'd been doing that for years and years. Yeah, he wasn't telling been anything been different. He no, said, Ken, for 40 years. That's right. Nobody ever listened. <laughs> that's what he said. He said, Ken Burns was the first person who said to him, No, you tell me your story. Uh, they didn't want to. Buck said, For 40 years, people would tell me about the Negro Leagues. Like they, <laughs> what, what they knew, and, and they would tell me. <laughs> and, and, and Ken Burns was the first guy that said, no, no, tell me. All right. Before I let you go, I, I do want to talk about one sort of current thing that you and I talked briefly about before we started. So uh, Kyle Lewis and Devin Williams were both uh, elected baseball rookie of the year this year, uh, which is really cool. Uh, both had, you know, obviously very, very short uh, seasons as, as, uh, as the pandemic demanded, but both had terrific years. It is the first time since 1984 that both rookies of the year are African-American yeah. and which is amazing, which is, I mean, it's amazing in, in multiple ways. It's sad, amazing, but it's also amazing that, uh, that it's been that long, uh, in 84 it was Alvin Davis and Dwight Gooden were the two rookies of the year. Uh, and, and since then there have been, really only a handful of, of African-Americans. Uh, but I do believe that there has been a sincere effort on the part of Major League Baseball to try to open this game up again yeah. Yeah. To, to the Negro. And of course, some of that is happening right in Kansas City, which I'm sure you'll talk about, you know, with the, with the, uh, with the um, you know, Dayton Moore's uh, academy. Uh, academy right there. But yeah. um Buck would have loved this, you know, Buck would have loved to just see, you know, that, that, you know, the game is maybe making strides in the right direction here. Well, and, and, and it will continue to do so, and, you know, Joe, and, and I share this. And again, maybe it's some of that Buck O'Neill optimism that has kind of filled over on me, but we don't live in the most patient society. No, we don't. You know, we, we are a <laughs> microwave society. So we want to see things happen instantly. And, and this gap that has occurred between the African-American community 
and, and baseball didn't occur overnight. So the nope. picks naturally will not happen overnight, but this is going to be a steady progression. And I think we're starting to see some of the fruits of that now, because what one of the things that disappointed me about this crazy coronavirus pandemic and, and some of the opportunities that it derailed, I was so looking forward to welcoming the Seattle Mariners yeah. to the machine. They had 10 brothers on that roster. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you still got some teams that don't have any. <laughs> yes, you can. Yes, you can. And they had 10, and Kyle being one of them, and Dave Sims, who's a dear friend, uh, Dave brings a group by every year as well when they come to, to Kansas City to play the Royals. And so I was so looking forward to welcoming those young athletes to the museum where they could immerse themselves in an environment where this is their legacy. Yeah. You know, this is their Mecca. And, and I wanted to see and feel what that was going to be like for them. It's great for any baseball player. Any baseball player should make this a tour stop because yes. it changes your perspective. But for the African-American and Hispanic ball player, I can't overstate how important it is for you to come back to your roots, to your origins. Because as we talk about this, and, and in my mind, there are no and if buts about it. You don't play this game had it not been for the players in the Negro League. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, no, there are no opportunities would have been abounded had there not been for these players who sacrificed tremendously in the Negro Leagues. And, and I think every athlete feels that when they come here. But for the African American Hispanic ball player, it, it is really, really special. And so I was really looking forward to welcoming them. This year, the only team that we had the opportunity to invite were the Pittsburgh Pirates. Yes. And Pirates actually had to put in a special request because, you know, they were basically quarantined when they came into these cities. They stayed within their hotels and didn't get out really at all. And the Pirates put in a special request, which allowed them to come and visit the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And I literally shut it down from the public so that their coaches and players could make their way here. And you know how important the city of Pittsburgh is to this story. Yes. And, and, their, and their manager really wanted them to, to feel this to get this. And, and it was pretty special. Well, it's, it is special. You know, we had Ryan Howard on here uh, a few weeks ago, oh, and he, cool. which is really great. And, and listening to him talk about meeting Buck about going to the museum and he, he'd been to the museum on oh. his own yes. before he ever became a ball player. Yes. You know, he would, yes. he would go through, but him talking about that feeling of seeing your history. Cause this is the thing we talk about. It's, there is there is a real question that every kid looking at sports feels, which is, can I see myself in there? Yeah. You know, I think it's yeah. true for women looking, you know, girls looking for themselves in sports, for African-Americans looking for themselves in sports, for Latino players looking for themselves. And if you can see yourself, it's it changes your entire perspective and your entire life looking at that. And the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum is where you can see your history. Yeah. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And I still think that our sport, by its nature, is still the most aspirational of all the sports. So you're right. You do have to see yourself yes. in that light 
to envision being and creating a pathway to, to play our game. And, and so when they come to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, they see people who look just like them, <laughs> who played the game as well as anybody ever played the game. Exactly right. And not only played the game, but owned teams and managed teams and were coaches and traveling secretaries and team physicians as we attempt through the great work that Dayton and, and Darwin Penny are doing over at the Urban Youth Academy, as we try to help kids understand all of the opportunities that can avail themselves that's with right. this. Exactly you know, right. and that's all a part of it. And it was all there with the Negro Leagues. So, you know, when you look at these other leagues, when you look at the Japanese League, or you look at baseball in Cuba or Puerto Rico, these folks still have their own league. Yes. So kids have something to aspire to. Sure. And they know that there's always this possibility. Number one, I can play it professionally in my own home, but there's always this possibility that I can get to the major leagues. That's right. You know? And so kids still clamor to play the sport. And, and we lost that with the Negro League. So you don't really have that anymore in the African-American community the way that you once did when you had your league and everybody walking around saying, I want to be Buck O'Neill. Yeah. I want to be Satchel Page. I want to be cool Papa Bell. Exactly you know, right. I want to hit that ball like Josh Gibson. Now, you weren't going to hit the ball like Josh Gibson. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> we all can dream. The whole point is we all can dream. Because, you know, and for me as a kid, and you've heard the story, I grew up and Hank Aaron was my guy. Yeah. That was my guy. I wanted to be Henry Aaron. And, 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 and so, you know, it didn't work out for me to be Henry Aaron, but I got to meet Henry <laughs> You got to be around Henry Aaron, which is, which is just about as good. No, it's, it really is true. And, and being able to see yourself in these games. All right. Well, look, this we can talk all day, but we can't because we, we got to prepare for Friday. So Friday, 1245 Central is when we'll, you can get there 1230 if you want. 12, yeah. It'll start up. But 1245 yeah. is when we're going to start rolling. Uh, it's going to be. Uh, Bob Costas. I mean, come on, just, just that alone. Just have Bob. Bob could talk for an hour and it would be amazing. You can have Ken Burns. So just Bob and Ken. I don't know why we're going. Um, <laughs> then me and Bobby, uh, and we are going to, uh, talk about Buck O'Neill. We're going to talk about the Negro leagues. Uh, you can live stream it at the Negro leagues baseball museum, uh, Facebook page. You can, uh, you can also live stream it on their YouTube channel. Uh, very easy to find. Uh, I hope you're there. I think it's going to be an amazing, amazing day. And uh, we'll, we saved a few, right? We saved a few stories. Oh, yeah. No, we we just warming up. We just warming up. <laughs> There's a lot of good stuff left to talk about, Buck. And I can't think of anybody better for us to have a conversation about than our friend Buck O'Neill. Oh, it'll be so much fun. It'll be so much fun. So I hope you're there. And uh, Bobby, thank you. Oh, man. No, uh, thank you. I always enjoy the opportunity. Always great to catch up with you. Does this sound familiar? You've got one device that lets you catch the game live, another that lets you stream your favorite shows, you're watching sports highlights on your phone, and you've got your neighbor's best friend's login <laughs> for the good stuff. Well, I want to tell you about a simple way to get all that entertainment you love without the hassle, and a great way to finally get your TV together. It's called Direct TV Stream. And it brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before. So you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. That means no more juggling remotes and no need to buy another device ever again. And the best part? 
there's no annual contract. Yes, no annual contract. So get rid of the clutter and the confusion and get your TV together with Direct TV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Compatible device required. Content varies by package. Today's episode is sponsored by the NBA and their quest to advance the game of basketball, grow the community, and impact culture. The league celebrates its teams, players, and fans across the past, present, and future as part of its 75th anniversary season. That's Game highlights pivotal moments on court and beyond, from iconic plays and arenas to the impact players have in the community. That's the NBA. That's Game. Like in the NBA Finals when the Bucks had their backs against the wall, Drew Holiday steals the ball, pushes the break, alley hoop to Giannis for an iconic slam, seals Game 5, and the eventual title. That's the NBA. That's game. This is more than just basketball. It's what connects us all and keeps us coming back for more. That's the NBA. That's game. Okay, so I am very excited uh, to be joined by Claire McNear, uh, whose new book, and I mean brand new book, because we are recording this on Tuesday, and this book came out, whatever, 11 hours ago. This is the first day out. The book is Answers in the Form of Questions, a Definitive History and Insider's Guide to Jeopardy. Uh, first of all, Claire, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, a couple of things. Obviously, um, you know, we were excited. This We had set this up uh, a while ago, quite a while ago. And, and uh, I'm very excited to talk to you about Jeopardy, which uh, has had a huge impact on my life like it has on so many other people's lives. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think we have to start. Uh, we lost Alex Trebek just a few days ago and, uh, that, that timing just happened, uh, to be, obviously he was sick for a while, but, uh, before we even get started talking about Jeopardy, you know, I'm really curious. You know, I've, I've, I'm about quarter of the way through the book, which I, which I'm enjoying very much. And, uh, you know, I, I think you, you write about this. Why, why was he so beloved? What, what was it about Alex Trebek that, you know, he, I think he was, he's such a huge, huge and important part of the show's enormous success, but, but why do you think he was so beloved? Yeah. I mean, this is just a, it's, it's such bittersweet timing with my yeah. book and, and really kind of just heartbreaking to, to have had this happen. And, and it, you know, it was shocking. I think you're right. He was sick for a long time, but it, it still was, I think a gut punch for, for Jeopardy fans everywhere. Certainly it was for me, but I had the great privilege of getting to know him a little bit while I was working on the book. So I, I think, um, you know, I, there's no one like Trebek, really. It's right. such a devastating loss. I, Ken Jennings has compared him to Walter Cronkite, and I think that's exactly right. He, like, he's just ubiquitous. He he became such a kind of icon of, of truth, of fairness. And I think there's just the simple fact that for more than 36 years, he held court on Jeopardy five nights a week. Like he was in your living room five yeah. nights a week for almost 40 years. It's it's an outstanding achievement, but it also has led to, I think, a lot of Jeopardy fans, even casual fans who are not necessarily, you know, religiously watching every night. He feels like a member of the family. And so, of course, you you see that in, in the kind of grief amongst people. Yeah, I, I... I love I love, you know, what Ken Jennings said and, and what you're saying about, you know, not only was he in your living room uh, every night, um, he was the arbiter of truth for mm -hmm. this. Right. I mean, he was the one that had 
the right answers and if and and he was the one that was going to tell you if you if you were a little bit off or if you were uh if you if you know he would be there to celebrate with you if you got it right and and there to tell you no when you got it wrong and he was funny uh in 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 his own uh you know sort of very quiet way um and he just seemed I don't know. I mean, the Walter Cronkite thing is good. I, I One of the things I think about a lot, obviously not specifically related, but is that we don't really have Walter Cronkite in, in the world, right? Because everybody is getting their news from different sources and, and, and so much of it is, is political and partisan and, and divisive. And he wasn't like he was, he was the one guy who was in the middle that, uh, you know, was, was just doing his job every night and, uh, and it felt like he was not of one side or of another side. Absolutely. I mean, he, he, he felt kind of like, like your favorite teacher from school, but he kind of <laughs> remained like the homeroom kind of followed you along as you made your way through life. I mean, he felt like such an authority figure and, and also he was, he was just such a universal touchstone. Um, everybody knew who he was. Everybody loved him. And I think that's why he had all those cameos on other shows. He was just so universal. Everybody loved Jeopardy. Everybody loved Alex Trebek. It's like universal name recognition and universal <laughs> approval, which is just, you don't have that in 2020. No, it's true. It really is true. All right. So the book focuses, as it should, I I, I agree, uh, on sort of the, season, the show Second Life, right? From 1984 on, you do talk a little bit about the early uh, uh, Jeopardy before Trebek. And and uh, and it's interesting because I can remember, uh, you know, being a sort of, you know, my family, my parents particularly, the, my parents have, have not missed Jeopardy uh, at, at any point since 1984. They've, they've, they've seen every single one. They, they have long been, uh, you know, sort of game show connoisseurs. So I can remember growing up, and I'm, you know, of that age where I can remember the 70s, when Jeopardy, I guess, was popular, but it, like, it felt to me like it was one of many. Like, it was one of, like, a bunch of different game shows, and you had Jeopardy, and you had Joker's Wild, and you had Price is Right, and you had... Uh, you know, match game and 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 uh, and and all these other shows, and there were like a million of them, and it was it was just one of them. Mm-hmm. Why do you think? And and I mean, I know this is sort of the focus of the book, but why why is Jeopardy still with us? Why is it still huge, bigger than ever? Why? What is it? Is it something about the format? Is it something about the way they do the show? That, that keeps it current and alive. And while these other shows have, have for the most part, faded away, uh, Jeopardy is still with us. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I actually asked um, Meredith Vieira that, that same question. She has a lot of, uh, in addition to being a broadcaster, has a lot of game show experience. She took yeah. over Who Wants to Be a Millionaire after Regis Philbin. She has a new show now that's that I think was just renewed. Um, she's like very versed in that world. and And she said that, you know, if it were, easy to create the winning recipe then everybody would do it right? right so i i think with jeopardy um a large part of it is is just that it really is an ingenious format it's yeah. really good and and that's in two different ways the first of which is there's so much trivia i'm not sure how you would cram more trivia more clues into a half hour they get through 61 in a game of, of jeopardy uh, and it really, like when you're in the studio, it's just moving at a breakneck pace. Um, and, and the second part of that is is really the, the gimmick of the answering in the form of a question. I right. mean, it, it really is this, this um, Merv Griffin 
silly trick that he came up with with his wife it was actually her idea to do that um and and that itself was kind of a nose thumbing at um the 1950s quiz scandals they were just giving the answers to the contestants up front which of course is now there's a federal law prohibiting it um so i it, it is just such a catchy thing i've talked to people who've competed on Jeopardy and then gone on to play on other game shows, as many do. And some have said to me that they have trouble snapping out of it. They, they just inherently say what is who is on these other shows, which of course drives them absolutely up the wall. Um, but it, it just is so iconic. It is iconic. And it's so interesting to me because as I'm reading, you know, because you you begin with a little, well, little, history lesson talking about uh, 21 and and uh, and the big game show scandal and and uh you know the whole the whole story and you know if you've seen the movie quiz show you know uh all about it and 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 you talk about that and you sort of carry us through and I you know as I'm reading it I'm thinking there's so much else that's good about Jeopardy I mean the the categories the fact that they they do put so much trivia in into every show uh, that it's bouncing around. It's very fast paced. Would it have made a difference if it was the question on the board and you had to just give the answer? Would it have made the difference? And I, I, I just kind of come, I, I, I think I know your answer. I kind of come around to, yeah, it wouldn't be the same thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously as, as a lover of Jeopardy, I want to say that you could, you could change the kind of optics of it in that way and it would still be the same game. But I think that that is that spark that makes it stick in your mind. Um, and, and that is what has led to, you know, Alex Trebek's version of the show being on the air for, for nearly 40 years. I mean, Amazing. Jeopardy is just such, such an anchor of television. It's it's such an anchor. I mean, like I say, I mean, there's just never a week that goes by that that uh, you know my mom or my dad won't call us. Oh, did you watch Jeopardy? You know, did you see this? Cause especially, and, and I, this is so. This is the next part, uh, and because it'll lead right into what they always want to talk about. What what were the steps? So 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 1984 is when uh, is when Alex Trebek takes over the new version of Jeopardy, right? But numerous things have been done since then to take it to this iconic place that it is now. What were the key things? What are the key things that have made Jeopardy the show that it is today? Yeah, I mean, you know, there there are certainly um, not cosmetic because that's not fair, but there there have been a lot of smaller um, changes that you know, if you were watching in 1984 and suddenly saw an episode that was doing this, you'd be very shocked by, like the Clue Crew, for instance, um, mm -hmm. which which a lot of people still still kind of resent that the clue crew <laughs> comes marching in to take over a category. Um, and, and, you know, things like doubling the clue, the clue values, which was really a response to the mania around who wants to be a millionaire in 1999-2000. But I think by far the, the biggest change and the one that has, you know, almost single-handedly created this modern era of Jeopardy is the removal of the five game limit. Yes. It, it of course, as, as you know, used to be that if you won five games, that's it. You were retired as champion and you'd, you'd be given a car as well as whatever cash you made and sent on your way. And, you know, you'd get to play again in the tournament of champions or something like that, but that, that was it. And so you see people like Brad Rutter, who of course is one of the best Jeopardy players ever and who has come back many, many times. And, and you know, finally I think is, is getting the, the fame, the name recognition that he deserves, but he was not a household name after his initial 
go on the show because he was booted after five games. And yeah. Ken Jennings then, of course, came on in 2004 and um, and very much did become a household name immediately, um, 174 games. But I think what that change did is it, it, and I make this point in the book, is it really allowed for the creation of characters. Mm-hmm. You, you are really rooting for people on the show and you also have these kind of long running, often returning figures who you know, who you root for, who you care about. And it's like, oh, wow, like they got a new haircut. Like it's, <laughs> um, it's you're, you're like a James Holzhauer fan or you're a Ken Jennings fan. And the idea of kind of adding that sort of sporting element to it, it is, is so brilliant. And I think Jeopardy certainly got a little bit of, of what might happen with that when they introduced it. But I, I, I mean, obviously I didn't, ever foresee somebody winning 74 games or even 32 games like Holtzauer. But uh, it's, it has so changed the way people watch it and, and the way people prepare for it too. It's so interesting to me knowing, so, so, you know, I, maybe this is the time we should talk just very briefly about it. So the, the biggest, I think a game show had ever really gotten was 21 in the fifties. Uh, and, and the big reason why was, was a guy named Charles Van Doren who, who, uh, you know, was just very charismatic, great on camera. And to the point where, you know, he was on the cover of time, right. He was on the cover of time magazine and, and, and I mean, he was just this, this beloved figure. And then of course, the scandal, it turns out he was given the answers in advance and the person he beat uh, actually threw the uh, the uh, the game. And and so, of course, this big scandal. And you talk about this a little bit uh, in your book as you're as you're leading into the story. But one thing that that, you know, should have shown is that is that people loved the idea of characters. So it yeah. is in some ways it's it's kind of weird that they ever had the five show limit i mean what what was the thinking you think behind the five show limit in the first place just to sort of keep the thing moving keep it rotating you know what i i think that i i actually don't know the answer to that because that was just kind of one of these sacred well these are the rules of the game right uh, things and and i i wonder if that itself when the original version started so soon after the quiz show scandals was maybe kind of a, a a little bit of fear about that because of course audiences were very familiar with the Charles Van Doren scandal and perhaps it was that you know if somebody started carrying on a streak like that as well it'd be suspicious but I, I don't that's purely yeah, no, that, no that could very well be it that I mean that actually makes a lot of sense if you think about it I mean that that maybe you know people lost faith in the idea of one person being able to to you know beat everybody that comes along for a long period of time maybe that right. maybe that that actually that actually that that sounds really plausible, um, but once they switch it, because that's what I was going to say. What my parents started to care about, of course, they watched it religiously before, but what they started to care about was the people and the streaks. And I can remember when Ken Jennings was going through his streak. I mean, they would call all the time, like, oh, "He won again! Oh my god, he won again!" And this, he's unbeatable. He's like, it's just it's it's ridiculous, mm-hmm. you know. And and then when when James comes on the show later and basically sort of reinvents how you bet on, on Jeopardy, essentially they were calling again. They were freaking out. Like it was so, it's so fascinating to me that the show that had been on for so many years could like provide these new layers for, for right. people watching the show. Right. Well, you look at the the greatest of all time tournament, which aired in January. Um, and that was, that was 
Brad Rutter versus Ken Jennings versus James Holzhauer. And right? the ratings for that were just <laughs> crazy. It was some of the highest rated television, uh, any television that year. It topped a bunch of like sporting, like playoff games. <laughs> I don't think it beat the Super Bowl, but yeah, just about. It was, it was crazy. People, and you know, it's just a state game show, but it, it has created these characters. I, I mean, I, honestly, like if they had done that tournament with, three really good trivia players who they knew were going to do pretty well, but nobody had ever heard of them. Right. I don't, I don't think people turn, tune in for that. No. So it is so much about these characters and, and they, it was really a, a genius move by um, Harry Friedman, who was the executive producer of the show for almost 25 years. And he actually retired this, this spring. It was one of his last projects. Um, it, it was such a genius move to, to kind of play into I don't want to say kayfabe because I think Holtzauer has kind of biased me to think that way. But the idea that they were naming the greatest Jeopardy player and you cared about who would be the official, literal greatest Jeopardy player. Um, it was it was genius. It was marketed well. But it was also just really fun to watch. It was, yes. it was great television. Well, it really was. I mean, the way they fed off each other. I mean, I think that's part of it, too. It's like <laughs> It's like they they all played it up. They all played up their own personalities. And, and that show, there is something about that show that seems to allow people to do that. You know, I mean, they, they, yeah. it's not like they get a lot of time to talk about who they are. They get that, you know, that that one minute where, you know, right. Alex asks right. them a yeah, couple of questions. <laughs> Yeah, but, they, get, they get to say that they, you know, went on with these <laughs> once and then on right, to the next one. Right, um, <laughs> right. But yet they, but somehow their personalities pull through on these. And yeah. it's fascinating. It's yeah. like I say, it's the depth of the show somehow. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that was one of the things I actually um, was able to, to speak with Trebek about. Um, and it, he loved that. He, he felt that, um, that that had really become the case just within the last few years with people like Austin Rogers, who was that bartender from New York and very charismatic, very fun, very funny kind of, you know, you would swear and they'd have to bleep him out. Like, <laughs> uh, and yeah, Trebek would kind of give him a hard time. And, and, but of course he was in on it. Like he, Trebek realized that there was a way to allow these contestants to show a little bit more personality and that he was really good at playing back with them. Like he was, a really good straight man or like he so much of what he did was kind of like air traffic control like he was just you know like letting people have a moment to breathe letting them have a moment to make a silly face make a gesture make a joke right just not just moving on to the rest of this trivia game because if you look at ken jennings's original streak he's always been this funny smart quippy guy right and yeah. of course i'm biased because he wrote my foreword but he is <laughs> he is lovely um but you didn't really get that in, in 2004. And I think that the show has realized both that it's possible and that audiences really enjoy it. It adds something to the act of watching Jeopardy. It really is. It really is uh, an amazing thing because like I say, if you, if you just told people you have this, this game show where the, the host, you know, goes through these different categories and, you know, he gives you the answers and you have to give the questions and he'll give you 20 seconds to, to tell you about why you like dogs or something. And that's <laughs> it. That there was no way, but, but there's a depth to it. And you know, it's funny. Uh, so I, I want to come back and ask you how, how this happened for you, like how you got into this. But before I do that, I do want to bring up uh, the SNL skit, mm -hmm. uh, the the Celebrity Jeopardy uh, SNL with Will Ferrell as uh, at Trebek and and uh, and and you know the very very funny. Uh, so 
it's it's so interesting, you know, because obviously they've done plenty of game shows on on Saturday Night Live, but that one resonated, and it's like I don't know, I I don't know that there, I have some sort of deep thought about this beyond the fact that you know, of course, it resonated because you're making fun of celebrities and how dumb they are, and 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 Trebek, you know, being sort of this this uh, you know figure that you can make fun of to his face and all that sort of thing, but. I don't know. It feels to me like like it was a it was a perfect representation of this show having like so much more heart and 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 soul than you would expect from a game show, I guess. You know, I mean, it, it's you have you have you can you can keep coming back and doing this over and over and over again because the show itself is so like implanted in us as as uh, as Americans or as worldwide viewers, I guess. Yeah, I, I think that's that's right. And and I think that the, the proof is in that they've introduced a second Jeopardy sketch to, to Saturday Night Live, right? There's Black Jeopardy now, which Black is Jeopardy, also exactly. amazing, but in a totally, totally different way. And I think that just speaks to what a universal format it is. And, and you know, both that it does allow for, for various kinds of jokes, but also that everybody gets it. Everybody yes. immediately knows, okay, this is Jeopardy. I get I get the setup. Um, and you know, and I think Will Ferrell's sketch is, is really interesting because, um, it was one of the questions that Trebek was always, always, always asked in the studio when he took questions from the audience, which was one of his kind of great personal traditions. He would always kind of make himself available and give everybody their chance to, to raise their hand. Um, he was always asked, aren't you offended by Will Ferrell's impersonation of you on Saturday Night Live? Because he really is like the worst, least charitable version of Trebek that you might imagine. Like he's mean, he's condescending. He hates his contestants. He just wants to go home. He's the smartest person in the room and he knows it. And he wants you to know it too. Like it's really, it's very mean. Uh, but Trebek always said that, you know, he, he actually loved it. He loved it. He, he had such an incredible sense of humor about himself. And I think, you know, he, as, as a performer, I think he just loved that audiences loved it, like that it resonated with people. Um, but one of the things I didn't realize, I, I did know that, um, the SNL sketch was itself kind of a reinvention of an old SCTV sketch with Eugene Levy playing the, the Alex Trebek role. And, and it had sort of the same basic joke to it where, where he hated his contestants. They were idiots. Like it was, it's really good. Um, and actually Trebek has said that, that uh, he preferred that one because Eugene Levy is even ruder. But what I found interesting is that uh the, the timeline of that, Trebek was still with the CBC at, in, in Canada at that point. And in addition to his broadcasting duties, he had started to host this trivia competition for high school kids called Reach for the Top. And this, so really what happened was from the very, very, very beginning of his hosting career, the very first thing he ever hosted at, on the game show front it was immediately kind of set into this, this sketch. And I think that says so much about, you know, how, how like instantly iconic he was able to, you know, you, you immediately knew who he was. Yeah. I def I think that it, he, he's such the key figure in, in the show, you know, because I, I was sitting there thinking about, uh, Saturday Night Live did like a skit about uh, Wheel of Fortune uh, with Tom Hanks, where Tom Hanks was the host. And it was also about the contestants not being able to get. It. And it just, 
it just didn't work. It yeah. just didn't work, you know, and you you make fun of, of uh, you know, the, the letters and you make fun of the people. But it's like, all right, whatever. I mean, it's like it's almost like the show itself is enough of a self mockery that like you can't really like it is it, <laughs> not to say I don't like watching Wheel of Fortune. No. Of course I do. But it's it's dumb. It's we know it's dumb and we, we, we still we you know, we enjoy it. But there's something so much deeper, I think, about uh, about why we connect with Jeopardy, which is just so fun. Today's episode is sponsored by the NBA and their quest to advance the game of basketball, grow the community, and impact culture. The league celebrates its teams, players, and fans across the past, present, and future as part of the 75th anniversary season. That's game highlights pivotal moments on court and beyond. From iconic plays in arenas to the impact players have in communities, that's the NBA, that's game. It's like game five of the NBA Finals where I was lucky enough to be there. Bucks Suns in Milwaukee. I'm sitting kitty corner from Giannis Antetokounmpo as he rises up for that incredible alley-oop. Drew Holiday having stolen the ball from Devin Booker on the other side, found Giannis in transition. Incredible stuff. That's the NBA. That's game. This is more than just basketball. It's what connects us all and keeps us coming back for more. That's the NBA. That's game. Ready to take a trip? Hear about all the must-see places with Thrillist's new series, Get Out of Town. Brought to you by the City Advantage Platinum Select Card. Go from the East Coast to the West and everywhere in between, like the best spot to grab a drink on the San Antonio Riverwalk. There's a million reasons to get out of town. The only hard part is choosing where to go first. Listen to Get Out of Town with Thrillist everywhere you get podcasts. Brought to you by the City Advantage Platinum Select Card. All right. So how how did you? So you are a, a longtime Jeopardy fan. You're a writer. You write for The Ringer. You do all lots of stuff. Uh, what was the connection? How did this happen for you? Yeah, so broadly, it's that I cover a mix of sports and culture, and to me, Jeopardy is where those things collide. It's a TV show that I, I think is very much a sport when you look at what people yeah. are actually doing, especially now. Um, but specifically, it was a thing I had grown up with, and it, and I, it had kind of fallen out of my life. You know, I'd gone to college, and in the years after college, like, I didn't have cable, um, just... I was not watching syndicated game shows. I really had no way to do it anyway. And so I was not at all following the the day-to-day of, of Jeopardy. And then when my um, fiance and I moved in together five years ago, I we got cable and I, I had this like epiphany that I could DVR Jeopardy and we could watch <laughs> Jeopardy every night. And so we started to do it. And um, and it, you know, it was both really fun, um, but also like you, you get into the storylines, you get into people like Austin Rogers. So I, you know, I am so fortunate to work at a place like The Ringer because I, I we are all encouraged to write about, to talk about um, the, just the things that we love, like our, our passions. And because I was kind of getting into Jeopardy again, I was able to just start writing about it. And, and of course, you know, as a reporter, the more you learn about it, the more you you report it, the more people you get to know in that world. Yeah. But both like, I think the better the work becomes, but also the more interested in it you get. And um, that kind of led, it, it led from not very serious, not necessarily reported Jeopardy coverage at the beginning when I was first kind of seriously looking at it to um, the seminal moment for me was in the midst of James Holtower's streak yeah. um, last, last spring, spring 2019. And uh, he, he 
was obviously tearing it up on the show and he was kind of an instant sensation because he just immediately laid waste to the board. Um, <laughs> one with just cartoonish, cartoonish scores, like immediately smashed the one, the one day record, which had been this like incredible achievement and then just like kept doing it, right? Kept breaking his own record. Um, so in the, in the midst of that, uh, I, I decided I wanted to write a story about the buzzer and how he was using the buzzer because it, it, it kind of become clear. I'd talked to enough contestants that, that were just really impressed with, in addition to many other things, his ability to use the buzzer to just control a game. And so I started reporting this story and I um, spoke to him. I spoke to Ken Jennings. I was able to talk to a producer at Jeopardy who kind of walked me through like how the buzzer works and also you know, what, what it was like to have James in the studio, though, of course, they were being very secretive about what had happened because he was still on the air. Um, and I, I contacted this champion named Fritz Holznagel. And Fritz was a Jeopardy champion in the 90s and, and um, really a fantastic player, did very well, has been on a bunch of tournaments. And he has become this kind of buzzer guru. He came back for a tournament not, not very many years ago, and he decided while he was preparing for that, that because he was a little bit older, he was going to miss a lot of the pop culture stuff. He just didn't really have that trivia edge that he knew he had had in, in previous uh, tournaments. So the edge he wanted to sharpen was buzzer timing. And so he, he and a friend um, built an actual physical buzzer, wired it to his computer, and he just started training on reaction time. And obviously he, he had spent a fair amount of time using the actual Jeopardy buzzer. So he had a pretty good idea of, of, what was going on there. And he managed to, you know, dramatically reduce his reaction time, but he did a really interesting thing in addition to that was, which was, he basically put himself through clinical trials. He would, he would try all these different ways of buzzing and see if they helped him or if they hurt him or if they did nothing. And that would be things like using his left hand instead of his right hand, holding the buzzer in a different position, using his index finger instead of his thumb. Uh, he would chug coffee before, you know, <laughs> buzzing in. You know, he would come <laughs> chug tea. He would do it at different times of day. And he, he basically came up with a series of really rigorous best practices for the Jeopardy buzzer, which is this very specific thing, Amazing, but it is yeah. such an important part of the game. And he published um, an ebook, and and it it was not a sensation. It was not a bestseller. He he told me because we've we've spoken many times about this. He told me that it you know it sold maybe seventy or eighty copies, <laughs> but yeah, it was it was very much like a passion project for him. Um, and and he did not win that tournament, but he was really convinced by his buzzer findings. But then what happened was James Holtzauer found it and. James Holtzauer used his advice, followed all of his best practices, and then, you know, started talking about the fact that, that Fritz had kind of taught him to do this. And he has since become this, this guru in the Jeopardy community on the, on the buzzer front, you know, his, his advice is kind of like the sacred gospel now, um, though, of course, reasonable minds can and do differ on the finer points of it. It's so great. Well, it's sort of like, uh, uh, what, what is it that they said? Is it uh, is it Lou Reed or, or Violent Femmes? One of them, like they they only sold like uh, a thousand albums, but uh, they sparked a thousand bands. 
Yeah. Every album's for a band. Yeah. So yeah, like yeah. that was, it was the most influential book ever written about Jeopardy right. in, the, in the sense of, you know. The... <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's had such an effect. And, and just to get back to, to that buzzer story that I was writing. So I, I interviewed all these people about it and I wrote this crazy story. And as I was writing it, I was like, this is so niche. <laughs> Who cares about the Jeopardy buzzer? No, I mean, it was like 3000 words long. It was a really long story. I worked really hard. I was just like, nobody's going to read this. Thanks to my editors for like letting me do this but you know who whatever this is just gonna sit in the corner of the internet and never be looked at again and then it kind of blew up like there it turned out that a lot of people yeah cared a lot about the buzzer and were really interested in how James Holtower was doing this and and he obviously hooked such a large audience of people who were not necessarily religious Jeopardy viewers um but so many people were curious about what he was doing and that for me was this moment of realizing that there there is so much interest in how Jeopardy works and, and what it's like to be a contestant and how they do it and who these people are. And eventually that kind of led to more coverage and, and somehow a book. No, it's great. It, it, look, that was a, it was a great story because I think the thing that, that, that I loved about that story was, you know, of course it was super fun for anybody who's watched Jeopardy. Anybody who has watched in Jeopardy where you watch the one person who keeps looking at the buzzer like, oh, it's, it's, mm. is mine not working? Yeah, you the know, poor like person that, shaking <laughs> it and <laughs> just poor. the most frustrating, heartbreaking thing. Yeah, yeah, like I knew that before that person right. knew that. Like that's yeah. You know, so, oh, so. <laughs> I, I think there's. I mean, having not played Jeopardy, fortunately for everybody, because I would be that person. Uh, I think that that has got to be the most frustrating thing. Ken Jennings told me that. Um, the vast majority of the time on the Jeopardy stage, all three contestants know the answer. They all yeah. know it. They're all really good. It is so hard to get on Jeopardy. So if you do, you're really, really good. Like you are the like shark at your your local bars pub trivia night on, <laughs> on Wednesday nights or whatever in the before times. Um, and so, so they all kind of know it and it really does just become this buzzer battle. And it is such, it is obviously not the only important part of the game because you you better know those answers if you're going right. to win but it, it is so crucial yeah it's like i say it's it's i i thought that was fast because i thought it was it was also you know when you talk specifically about the buzzer it's it's human nature too right it's sort of this 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 amazing you know you, you don't even think about this sort of game within the game but but using the buzzer at such a point where you are first but not before you know for sure that you're going to know i mean it's just it's i mean it really is just this this perfect instant to try to get that so so all of this leads uh to to you writing the book you got to to really spend some time with all of these people mm -hmm. all of these characters what 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 do you, what's your sort of this is the question every book every author gets you know it's the what surprised you you know whatever but but what what sort of was your all right? Let me just ask you this: What was your most fun sort of thing? You know, when I when I wrote uh, um, uh, my last book about Houdini, I you know was able to to you know my most fun thing was going and 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 walking through uh, David Copperfield's museum, right, and getting to see all the cool stuff. So what, if you could pick sort of one day or one thing that was like the most fun for you, what was it? Oh man, I I. I mean, of course, interviewing Trebek in his yeah. dressing room was yeah. was um, incredible, and and I was I was so nervous for that interview because he <laughs> is this kind of 
authority figure, this sort of sacred figure, this, this person who's been in my life, my literal entire life and, and uh, just being just so worried that I was going to screw it up somehow <laughs> that he was going to be disappointed in me. And of course he was, he was so lovely. Um, but the, the other kind of great thing that I got to do, I mean, I got to do a lot of great things, which was so fun, but uh was I, I didn't really know about the Jeopardy alumni scene. And there is this bar in um, Santa Monica, California called O'Brien's. And it famously has a really, really hard weekly pub quiz. Um, and about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, maybe, a, a notable Jeopardy champ named Jerome Fared, um found like basically came across this and started going and he he started bringing his friends and a lot of his friends were also notable jeopardy champions and over the years it has become this kind of jeopardy gathering place so if you go and i think it's wednesday nights obviously not right now i think they've moved it online but um the place is just packed packed with jeopardy contestants and that's former contestants aspiring contestants that's some really, really notable champions. Like Brad Rutter is a regular there and Pam Mueller and Buzzy Cohen and Alan Lynn and just all, all these very notable champs. And it, it is like this pilgrimage for Jeopardy people who don't live in Los Angeles. They really, they kind of plan their trips around getting a chance to go to O'Brien's and play the game and, you know, <laughs> try to you know worm their way onto somebody's team. And, um, and I think it just speaks to both how much um, like uh, trivia really is is a, a thing of passion that they they kind of feel compelled towards um, for for a lot of Jeopardy people like it, it really it's not just like this one time game show thing it's, it's kind of a lifestyle in a way but it also there the alumni community is so tight knit and I think that that is both because they all have this this singular weird obsession but. Also, because the experience of going on Jeopardy is so weird, is so stressful, and uh, the people who go on it really stick together, I think. And there's like a, a secret Facebook group um, that you have to be invited to uh, just for <laughs> former Jeopardy contestants. And you, if, you're, if your episode's airing this week, you, you, you get the invitation and it's like this glorious <laughs> moment of like, I finally made it. Uh, so it's, it's this really, really tight knit community. That's really fun. Now, is Michael McKeon part of, 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 of any of this? Cause I, 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 I <laughs> you know, know I, I don't think he's very active in the, the alumni community <laughs> though. Obviously he really is one of the notable champs of the show. And I was lucky to, to talk to him for the book. Um, it was great. I mean, yeah. the stuff that he was saying, so Michael McKeon, the actor uh, you've seen, of course was in, uh, Laverne and Shirley. And then, uh, you know, it's been in all of the, uh, the great, uh, the great Christopher Guest movies and all of that. Um, uh, Spinal Tap. Uh, huge, huge Jeopardy fan and successful contestant, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he won the Million Dollar Masters, I think I'm not screwing up the name. Um, he won basically what was the Tournament of Champions for previous celebrity Jeopardy contestants because he'd done wow. so well in his first appearance that he won the like grand $1 million prize for charity, of course. Um, yes. On, on this this uh, bigger tournament that I think they, they filmed in New York at um, Radio City Music Hall, <laughs> and uh, it, he's he's really good. He's very he's super knowledgeable. He's super good on the buzzer. Um, but you're right, like he is so much an actual Jeopardy fan. Like it is a thing 
we were talking about this. He, he was telling me that he and his family, he and his wife and his kids, if they're around, they religiously watch it every single night. They are very, very serious about this. This is a big deal to them. They want to see the night's game and they play along and they, he, he told me that they do not keep track of their scores, but I'm kind of like, maybe they do. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but it's, he, he is such a, a diehard fan of the show. And, and, and that is, so many people are. It, it's, yeah. Oh, it's absolutely. It's so fun getting to talk to so many people in different walks of life that all kind of approach this game show that way. It's so great. It's so great. We do. We we keep track of our score. And uh, But the great thing about keeping track of your score when you're watching it on television is I, I've never missed one. Right. It's like it's like all the ones that I missed, I just completely forgot. Right, right, right. Of course. Like, I, but I got that one on. Uh, yeah, on, I, I on... know the tip of my tongue. <laughs> I I would have he said it before right. I did, right. but I would have said he it. You distracted me, yeah. <laughs> Plus, I got that really. I got World War Two for six hundred. So come on, <laughs> right? Exactly. Me, yeah. So this is awesome. I I, I hope everyone uh, goes out there. You'll love this book. Answers in the form of questions: A definitive history and insider's guide to Jeopardy. Available uh, everywhere as of today. Claire, I can't thank you enough for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. The presenting sponsor of today's show is Tops.com and Tops Project 70. Tops is celebrating the 70th anniversary of its very first baseball card design with a new program that pushes boundaries while also paying homage to their heritage. Founded in 1938 as a chewing gum company, Tops released their first baseball card set in 1951. Now, seven decades later, Tops has teamed up with 51 artists and creatives from around the globe to revisit and reimagine 70 years of Tops' most iconic baseball card designs through a year-long program called Project 70. Each artist will select their own MLB players and top designs from any year to craft a unique story. Ever wanted to know what Babe Ruth or Mickey Mantle would look like in a 1980s tops design? Or how about Fernando Tatis Jr. in the 1950s? Now you can. Three new cards launch daily all year long on tops.com and are only available for 70 hours before they're gone for good. While you're there on the lookout for special cards, each card drop includes rainbow foil editions, numbered 1 to 70, randomly inserted into each card's print run, as well as one of one gold frame edition given to a lucky purchaser. Exclusive artist proof editions, numbered to 51, featuring a silver frame are also available for purchase for every single card. But hurry, as those sell out shortly after each card is launched. So look, head to tops.com to learn more about Project 70 and to check out which cards are live right now.